Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what. There's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we're going to give credit where credit is due. That's right. We're going to take time out to celebrate the unsung heroes of rock and roll. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. If you own a television or you go to the movies, you are probably aware that the Writers' Union, the Writers' Guild of America, has struck Hollywood, the Hollywood TV producers, the movie producers, in an effort to get uh, fair compensation for uh, things that they write that are appearing on the Internet. It has pretty much crippled any scripted television show. It's going to hit the movie production very soon. It hasn't really impacted music, other than what we were talking about a few weeks ago, shows that are kind of reality music shows, like the dreaded American Idols, are are what's filling up a lot of the airtime. That and American Gladiators, right? Is it going to affect the Grammys? That's the big question. The Writers Guild strike succeeded in shutting down, for all intents and purposes, the Golden Globe Awards last week. There was a one-hour televised press conference instead of the big, ritzy, glamorous awards spectacular, right? Well, the Grammys are second only to the Oscars as far as the big deal Hollywood Glamour Fest award show. All that stuff is scripted. You know, every year we see these musicians standing up there stumbling over the teleprompter. You know, I'd rather hear whatever Snoop Dogg would come up with off the cuff rather than reading a scripted thing. But the Grammys are saying, well, we're hoping we're going to strike an agreement with the Writers Guild. The musicians unions, you know, have always had a good relationship. We think we'll be able to go on with the show. The Writers Guild of America is saying... I don't think we're going to reach an agreement. We don't know if the Grammys are going to happen this year. As far as I'm concerned, that would be a wonderful thing if I don't have to sit through a 17-hour Grammy show. <laughs> you know, it's one thing if you have a megastar who's up for a lot of Grammys. In the years where you had, like, Carlos Santana, and everybody knew who Carlos Santana was. Everybody had heard those songs, and they tuned in to see the music. But most years, Jim, let's face it, you have casual music fans tuning into the Grammys, and they really don't know about a lot of these bands and artists who are going to perform at the Grammys. They're more interested in Will Smith bantering with J-Lo on the stand. It's about the glitz, the glamour, who Who's wearing what? Who's going to say what to what movie star? Yeah. It really doesn't have a whole lot to do with music. This year, the emphasis may be on the music again because they're not going to have any scripts, it looks like, if they, in fact, actually have the show. But I'm wondering if anybody's going to tune into that. I've got two tickets for paradise. Won't you pack your bags for me tonight? I've got two tickets for paradise. I've got two tickets for paradise. Big news in the ticketing industry this week, Jim. The biggest concert promoter in the United States, Live Nation, has announced that it's going to start its own 
ticketing business in 2009. It has a long-time relationship with Ticketmaster, the biggest ticket seller in the U.S. It is now severing that relationship to go on its own. Live Nation essentially in an effort to become a self-contained music company. A few yeah. months ago, it signed Madonna to a major record deal. It appears it wants to do everything. It wants to become a record company, a ticketing agency, as well as a concert promoter. And uh, this is the first step in that direction. Meanwhile, Ticketmaster is going into the secondary ticket market in a big way. It has purchased Tickets Now Inc. for $265 million. Jim, this is an interesting area here because Ticketmaster has been in competition with these secondary ticket sellers, these scalpers, these ticket right. brokers. And hadn't they been claiming that they've been trying to shut those people down? Yes. And and now they're buying up one of their biggest competitors uh, to go into competition. So in other words, they're going to sell you a ticket at regular price for $50, let's say, plus service fees. But then they can turn around and, and get some tickets off the secondary market and resell them to consumers for $150, $200, $300 and mark up their price. This raises so many ethical questions, Greg. And it's not just Ticketmaster we're picking on. Live Nation, in setting up its own ticketing agency, is said to be looking at the same sort of thing. What's to stop them from holding back a certain portion of the seats in any arena? So then you're going to have Joe Public. You got a shot to get a ticket, you think. But really, they're all being held back and uh, they're going to these secondary sales. Why pay $50 for a ticket when you can pay $500, right? Uh, Well, Ticketmaster and Live Nation are wondering. The dangerous part of this is that none of that money's going to the artist. Right. right. <laughs> or is Ticketmaster going to cut the artist in on that? And then so the artist has a ticket price, but you really can't get th- those tickets for that price anywhere. You know, Jim, it'll be interesting to see how the federal government reacts to this, because in the mid-90s, they looked at Ticketmaster and they basically dropped the ball. They said, that is fine. You know, it's basically a monopoly, but we're going to let them operate as they will. Service fees have only gone up to exorbitant levels since then. Now we're seeing, you know, another level of this going on. The people who are really going to get screwed, you mentioned the bands. I mean, the consumers are going to be paying through the nose for tickets as a result of these deals. So it'll be interesting to see how the U.S. government reacts. So if you don't feel so hot, go out to some Jersey spot. And whether you're hip or not, the Jersey bounce will make you swing. If you've been listening to our news segments over the last couple of months, you know that we've been predicting, Greg and I, a major showdown between the mega festivals this summer in the United States. Coachella really set the model a couple of years ago with this giant festival with all these acts you couldn't see anywhere else out in the desert in California. You have Bonnaroo in Tennessee. You have the folks from C3 Presents in Austin, Texas, having started with the Austin City Limits Fest, then succeeding with a Lollapalooza in Chicago, and now a new and as yet unnamed festival in Vineland, New Jersey. They wanted to hold it in Philadelphia, but uh, Philadelphia wouldn't let them do it, so they're doing it in a farm in the middle of nowhere in South Jersey. This story interests me, Greg, because I'm a Jersey boy, okay? <laughs> I grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey, which is really the armpit of the universe. You know, it's only <laughs> famous for having the other end of the tunnel that comes from Manhattan, right? There is is one nice little green space in all of Jersey City, and it is called Liberty State Park. It is this beautiful park right, and never mind that it was built on a garbage dump, it's beautiful now, right across from the Statue of Liberty, mm-hmm. which is actually closer to New Jersey than New York. Apparently, according to the New York Times, the people behind Coachella, Golden Voice, the promoters in California, are going to bring another Coachella to New Jersey. So they're doing their festival out in California in the desert. They're going to go to the East Coast now. August 8th through 10th. Coincidentally, the same dates as this festival in Vineland that the Lollapalooza promoters are going to do. 
two major festivals over three days, the same three days, in the state of New Jersey. Both of them can't do business. This is going to be a showdown to the bloody death. Jim, you're, you're talking about 250 to 300 bands and artists playing in New Jersey on the same weekend at two major festivals. It's going to be a bloodbath. First of all, there's going to be incredible competition for the main headliners at these festivals. Secondly, we, we've talked about this problem before. How do we differentiate these festivals? What are, what are their identities? We are going to have clone festivals throughout the United States now. We're going to have yeah. two Coachellas. We're going to have basically three versions of the Lollapalooza lineup. Lollapalooza in Chicago. Then you're going to have the Vineland Festival that they're going to be doing the following weekend in Jersey. And then a few weeks later, you're going to have the Austin City Limits Festival, which is put on by the same people in Texas. Its saturation point has been reached at this point. I'm wondering what, how the consumers are going to benefit Well, from it's this. worth mentioning again to people who don't live in any of these locales that the new model that the promoters would like to have for the summer concert industry is essentially Walmart. There'll be a couple of these big, giant festivals, one in, in this corner of the United States, one in that corner, one or two in the middle, right? And that will be the entire summer concert season, except for very, very small clubs. That's the way they'd like to do it. <laughs> one big box. You sign up the same act. They play in your festival in Tennessee, and they play in your festival in, in Texas and, and, and everywhere else. Uh, Jersey is going to be the showdown. Really interesting. My old stomping grounds. Greg, that's a song called Citizen Soldier by Three Doors Down. If you've been in the movies lately, you might have seen this commercial that's showing in movie theaters before the trailers and before the movie, recruiting film for the National Guard, which Three Doors Down recorded this song, Citizen Soldiers, for, trying to get people to sign up. The Army, not to be outdone, is doing the same thing. They've put out a request for proposals, government always likes to call these things, seeking a, I quote, professional celebrity rock music band. (laughs) As you know, our armed forces are stretched mighty thin with two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The Army needs people. And so they decided that rock is the way to do it. Here's a summary from their own request for proposals. It's online under usgovernment.org, right? This is what they're looking for. Professional celebrity rock music band. Group not to exceed seven people for tour of forward operating bases in Kuwait and Afghanistan for February 4 to 13, 2008. The band should be an active rock band with a music genre consisting of southern rock, pop, post-grunge, or hard rock. At least one member of the band should be recognizable as a professional celebrity. Protective military equipment, such as Kevlar, body armor, eye and ear protection, will be provided when the group is traveling on military <laughs> rotary or fixed-wing aircraft. There, there's an inducement <laughs> to sign up, huh? You know, you, you, you won't get hurt too bad because we'll give you the bulletproof vest. We all know those have been working for See, our boys. 50 Cent would love this. this. This is his gig, you know? But they don't say hip-hop. And actually, I had read an article in Stars and Stripes a couple of months ago where they did a survey of the paid downloads, not illegally downloads, of all the artists in the uh, American Armed Forces. And by far, number one, I mean, beating everybody by like 75% is R. Kelly. (laughs) But, you know, they don't have R&B, they don't have uh, hip-hop on the list. Now, of course, the government being the government, they have established some very well-notated rubrics. 
how will you know if you meet the celebrity standard? Well, here's one example. You will be judged excellent if the proposed group contains at least one member who is a recognizable celebrity nationally or internationally. You'll be judged simply adequate if the proposed group contains at least one member who may be recognizable within a certain metropolitan community, (laughs) although not nationally or internationally. And you will be judged poor if the proposed group does not contain at least one recognizable celebrity member. So in other words, Paris Hilton would beat out Wilco. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what. <laughs> I used to feel like God don't love me. Maybe the problem is I don't love me. I was living wrong, so my mom don't trust me. But I know who I am. God don't make ugly or mistakes or lies. My mistakes is mine. Told my girl pack a bag. No more wasting time. The excuse is lame. If we stay, we dying. I ain't look to nobody for help. I'm, I'm. Some of you may recognize that chorus. That's uh, Man in the Mirror, a Michael Jackson track uh, from a few years ago. You may not recognize the other voice on that uh, particular track, and that was Rhymefest, a Southside rapper from Chicago who has made a essentially a one of the most elaborate mixtapes of recent years, an entire record based on Michael Jackson samples called Man in the Mirror, the Michael Jackson dedication album. He's releasing it for free on his website, rhymefest.com. Several elements to this story, Jim. One is that the Michael Jackson revival is in full swing. Especially in the hip-hop world. Absolutely. He is being sampled more than ever by hip-hop artists. He himself is going to be back in February with a major, major reissue of his biggest-selling album, Thriller. It's going to be reissued with bonus tracks, with remixes by contemporary artists like Kanye West. And then, later this year, Jermaine Jackson, his brother, promises a Jackson 5 reunion tour. So we are going to have major Michael Jackson music news this year, which is a switch for Michael, because uh, the last we heard of him, he was acquitted in this child molestation trial, sort of went into hiding after that. Now he seems ripe and ready for a musical comeback. Well, it's interesting. People have not wanted to hear new Michael Jackson music since the late 80s. I think that the fondness remains for those great works that he recorded in the 70s and 80s. We can still love that music, regardless of what we think of him as a person. Whether people pay for any new music, if there is any, whether people go to the concert, I don't know. You know, what will be interesting to see is whether any of the new Michael Jackson projects hold up to the standard he set himself with albums like Thriller and Off the Wall back when Michael Jackson was the great Michael Jackson and none of this other weirdness was creeping into his life and making people question what kind of a person he really was. Rhymefest is approaching his particular project as as a fan. It might also be noted here, Jim, that this is a musical contraband of the first <laughs> order. Yeah. Uh, this is not an authorized release. I, I don't even know if Michael Jackson knows that it's out there yet. And when he does, it'll be interesting to see whether he sends Rhymefest a cease and desist order and says, basically, stop doing this. Same thing happened a couple of years ago when Danger Mouse put together Jay-Z's Black Album and the Beatles' White Album. It was out there. People were getting very excited about it. Then it got shut down. So, you know, this may be a get-it-while-you-can kind of thing. Exactly, and I think people should seek this out because it's very cleverly done. There are a number of skits in here where Rhymefest has these imaginary dialogues with Michael (laughs) Jackson. Uh, Really well done. 
One of the more serious ones is this one called Mike the Mentor, and here is Rhymefest and Michael Jackson having a virtual dialogue through the powers of the remix. Hey, Mike, I got something on my mind that has really been bugging me, and I, and I need some advice. Can you just, like, just sit and just mentor me for a second? Sure. Well, you know, I, I'm trying to come up in a rap game, and I want to be like you, iconically, music-wise. But, you know, with hip-hop, it's kind of like if you ain't shooting people or selling a lot of dope, it's like you're not hood, you're not black enough, you're not, and, and I don't know what to do, you know what I'm saying? I don't That's know what to do. That's the most ridiculous, horrifying story I've ever heard. It's crazy. The more often a person tell a lie, the more times you hear a lie. I mean, you, you, you begin to believe it. You know what? That's true, G. But it's like when radio plays it all the time and, and the TV plays it all the time and they tell you you're not black. You know, if you don't do this, like, how, do, how did you overcome everything people said about you? Like not being urban enough or not being black enough. I'm you know? a black American. I'm proud to be a black American. I am proud of my race. I am proud of who I am. I have a lot of pride in who I am yeah, and dignity. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's brilliant. You know, Rhymefest does a great job of humanizing Michael Jackson in this record, bringing a sense of humor to it. You know, Michael, I think the one thing that's been really lacking from his music in the last 20 years is that sense of humor. And Rhymefest approaches him as a fan, makes him accessible, has some fun with it. It's the best thing Michael Jackson's had his name on in two decades, Jim. Instead of shutting this down, Jackson ought to (laughs) give him a a monkey or something for thanks. (laughs) Exactly. And and there is some some great music on here as well. Rhymefest really knows the back catalog. He digs deep. He, He went for a Michael Jackson version of a old Bill Withers song, Ain't No Sunshine. Jackson did his version of it. Now here's Rhymefest's version of Jackson's song, No Sunshine on Sound Opinions. I got addicted to the game, to the money, to the fame. I'm walking through the club and everybody know my name. And that's a glad shame. When you lose everything from the crib to the kids to the rain. On your wife's finger, my thing, the daddy is a nice singer. Tried to do the right thing, but this is how your life ends up. When you a dreamer and turn them dreams into cash. Take a ride with us for a minute, man. Uh huh. This is Ryan Fest. And And your man, Lil Mike. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Get ready. Here we go again, baby. Look. You ever wanted something so bad till you got it? And it loses all the magic, then it just don't feel exotic. Take it for granted. Beat it up until you lose it. Is it cause of your money or your woman or your music? Or your take- Rhymefest reworking Michael Jackson's version of Bill Withers' Ain't No Sunshine. Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we will honor the most underappreciated figures in rock. Look at my bruises, beautiful cause I got them. Look at his body, beautiful in the way I shot him. I like my beats like my position, they got a lot of bottom. Oh, if you want to play possum, we can possibly rob him. Pop a possum, like the fans, we snapshot him. Until we all wish up the bills like Hillary Rodham. Until it's gone, until it's moan, until it's on. Mike, come on, come on, come on. Yeah. 
know what it is. This is Ryan Fest. See, I'm the number one Michael Jackson fan in the world, baby. Ain't no fans really to me, because ain't no fans doing what I'm doing right now. <laughs> Look, she goes, and she goes, and she goes. You know what? I'm going to tell you like this. I'm so real with this right here, man. This is so much in my heart right now, man. I take this CD to the hood right now. Give it to the biggest dope dealer in the world. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And today we are going to pay homage to the great, or some of the great, unsung heroes of rock and roll. Greg, when I was back at Request Magazine in Minneapolis, I did a column called The Great Instruments of Rock and Roll. And I would only write about stuff that nobody really understood, like the singing saw <laughs> or the theremin. And, and it was just a fun little goofy thing. We were brainstorming, riffing on that, and that led us to a bigger, better idea. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the whole idea of everybody's a hero for 15 minutes, everybody's famous for 15 minutes, kind of extends to the rock band as well. I think a well-oiled rock band has many, many unsung heroes in it. People recognize the lead singer. They recognize, you know, the Mick Jaggers of the world and maybe the Keith Richards. But do they really know who Charlie Watts is and how important he is to what the Rolling Stones are? And let's take that a little bit further. I mean, you go to any song that's a huge hit, and inevitably you'll recognize the name of the person who gets credit for it. But behind the scenes, there's a lot of people that make that song great and make that song what it was. So we wanted to investigate this further. Who are the true unsung heroes of rock and roll? Let's go back 50 years, and let's find out who the people are that really deserve more credit than they're getting for the great music that they've made over their lifetimes. Absolutely. I'm going to start, Greg, I think, with one of the all-time classic unsung heroes of rock. Bo Diddley, of course, was a major innovator, one of the godfathers who put rock and roll on the map. He has a whole beat named after him. Yeah. You know, nobody will ever do that freight train shuffle sound and not be, you know, said that they were doing the Bo Diddley beat. Right. But was Bo really the heart of the beat? Bo had a pal, and his name was Jerome Green. The way that they met is Jerome was a jazz tuba player, right? Can you? <laughs> how many jazz tuba players, right? Right. And he lived in the apartment in the mid-30s underneath Bo and Bo's second wife, Ethel Tootsie Smith, <laughs> right? And Bo was starting this band. He famously, you know, handmade his first electric guitar, and he had this idea for a rhythm, which really came back from the, from the rhythms of ancient Africa, this polyrhythmic shuffling thing that Bo brought into the urban cities of America. He wanted to add what he called the shuffling freight train. Well, he had the drums, he had the guitar, he the freight train. For the freight train, he turned to Jerome. Jerome could sing a little bit. Bo taught Jerome, apparently, how to play the maracas. Jerome brought great style to this. He would dance. He would do the call and response vocal with Bo. And he was a cool dude. So cool <laughs> that it is said that Mick Jagger and uh, Phil May of The Pretty Things and Van Morrison of them studied the appearances of Bo Diddley on TV to get that kind of lead singer swagger when they would play the maracas in the British Invasion 10 years later. 
Jerome was key to the Bo Diddley sound. He was in the group for 10 years. He sang. He played maracas. He toured with Bo. And then he got married and he quit. Mm -hmm. You know? And I don't know what became. Nobody really knows what (laughs) became of Jerome after that. But Bo loved him so much that one of the early hits in 1955 was was called Bring It to Jerome. So, you know, this one goes out to Jerome Green, one of the unsung legends of rock and roll. to Jerome by the immortal Bo Diddley and Jerome Green. Excellent choice, Jim. Uh, maracas player. You don't hear a lot of maraca players st- cited. <laughs> no, but it's true. You know, it's the maracas were essential to those Bo Diddley records. And as a drummer, I can say it's a hard instrument to play, mm-hmm. you know, and to keep in time, to control. Absolutely. The man I'm going to go to is, uh, is one of the great unsung heroes of 1960s rock and roll. Guy was on 40 number one singles, 150 in the top 10. I mean, he played on records by everybody from the Ronettes to the Mamas and Papas to the Carpenters. Hmm. And take that for what you will, he played great on those Carpenters <laughs> records, too. But the stuff that I really love is the stuff he did for uh, Phil Spector, the Wall of Sound. What was key to the, the Spector Wall of Sound was that he had a large orchestra in the studio playing together in real time. These guys had to be good because they had to get it in one take. Sometimes it would take 40 takes to get there, but they would get that one take, and that would be the hit record. The key to all that was Hal Blaine, the drummer, one of the great drummers of all time. And what he did was essentially create what he called the wrecking crew. Frank Sinatra said, you guys are ruining rock and roll. You're killing rock and roll. And and Hal Blaine embraced that. He said, yeah, we're the wrecking crew. We're making a new sound here in Los Angeles right now. (laughs) Blaine was at the heart of it. You listen to those Phil Spector wall sound records. Where would they be without that drum sound? And specifically, you as a drummer, Jim, would probably appreciate this more than uh, the average listener, but he had that little triplet thing on the toms, that dunk, 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 dunk. 
You know, that has been used so many times. I mean, the Jesus Classic. and Mary chain loved it so much that they used it twice on their first record. <laughs> that, 20 years later. Basically, they built a whole career out of it. Exactly. Yeah. Max Weinberg of uh, the E Street Band, a mm-hmm. far more mm-hmm. famous drummer than Hal Blaine, has made a career out of playing Hal Blaine-style drums on Bruce Springsteen records. Well, Hal Blaine was the original. Not many people know his name. You know, it was just Phil Spector produces. And meanwhile, you had this amazing drummer behind that wall of sound. The Renettes Be My Baby. I don't think you can have any oh, better yeah. example of great drumming on a rock record, how it propels the record. And it starts with a lot of people call one of the most famous drum introductions of all time. It was by Hal Blaine, and it's on Sound Opinions. The Renettes Be My Baby. The great Hal Blaine on the Renettes, Be My Baby, one of my unsung heroes in rock and roll. Who's your next unsung hero, Jim? Well, Greg, I wanted to honor a rare genre, but a genre nonetheless in rock and roll. A genre or a position, I don't know what you would actually even call it, but it's the guy who really does not contribute musically, but brings this incredible over-the-top enthusiasm (laughs) to the performers as a dancer, okay? You know, you had the guy who, uh, another Jerome, Jerome Benton, who was Morris Day's sidekick, right? You know, and he'd say, Jerome, and then the mirror would come out and stuff, right? You had Bez from the Happy Mondays. But to me, the best dancer, hype man, non-musical member, but nonetheless (laughs) member of the band, was the guy in the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. His name was Ben Carr, and he actually was sort of a manager of the band, later just credited on records as Boss Tone. What did he do? He just he was Boston and he provided Boston. He danced like a maniac. This was no small gentleman. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, everybody on the production crew was saying, "You're not going to play the Mighty Mighty Boston's, are you?" I am, and I'm going to defend the Mighty Mighty Boston's as a great band, one of the best bands of the late '80s to mid '90s. They came out of the Boston hardcore scene, and they were aficionados of that whole ska thing. They played ska at the hardcore tempos of punk rock. This was not a new idea, but they brought a certain style to it. That whole kind of swinger. 
jazzbo hipster Frank Sinatra thing. I once interviewed Dickie, the lead singer of uh, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, and there was a massive road crate, you know, and I'm, I mean about five feet tall and six or eight feet wide mm-hmm. squared, right? And I said, man, what is that? Is that all the band's gear for the whole show? He said, no, those are my suits. All right? <laughs> so they had style and panache. Nobody had more style and panache than Boss Tone, Ben Carr, who would just dance like crazy for the whole show, 90 minutes, and I mean really, really moving. And he deserves <laughs> some props for that. I'm sorry. I love this song. This was a number one single. You know, it, it, a lot of people said it was when the Boss Tone sold out. I'm sorry. It's a great song. It deserves to be remembered. The impression that I get by the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. The impression that I get by the mighty, mighty boss tones. Ben Carr, boss tone, wherever you are, I hope you're still dancing. Let, let, let's go to Texas for a minute, Jim. I want to go to Texas and, and explain why one of my unsung heroes is so unsung and why he's so crucial to so many bands and people still don't know his name. And that is Augie Myers. When I say Augie Myers, people just draw a blank. You know, who? Mm. What are you talking about? The guy was all over the place. For the last 40 years, he's played on numerous hit records. He was a critical part of that Bob Dylan comeback. Time Out of Mind, that comeback record, Augie Myers playing that electric keyboard was was just a huge part of that sound. But Augie Myers, going all the way back to the 60s, was a key exponent of the Vox Continental Organ. Mm. And when you think about the Vox Continental Organ, this little portable electric keyboard, it really revolutionized keyboard playing in rock and roll. It brought the keyboard back to a place of prominence. It was all over rock and roll records in the 60s. When you think about a song like um, The Animal's House of the Rising Sun, you think about numerous Zombies songs. You think about, you think about 96 Tears by Question Mark and the Mysterians. People think it's, it was the Farfisa organ, which was made in Italy. No, it was really the Vox <laughs> Continental. I was going to. Now we're going to start a fight here between Farfisa fans right. and Vox fans. You know yeah. that the Vox was was made, manufactured in England. The Farfisa was manufactured in Italy. Pink Floyd was a big exponent of the Farfisa, by the way. Yeah. But Augie Myers was a huge proponent of the Vox Continental organ, uh, mainly because he, you know, he could afford it. It was a cheap organ. It made a lot of sense. It added the grease to that Texas <laughs> sound. Basically, with the band, the Sir Douglas Quintet, 
who were a, basically a fake British invasion band. Yeah. This guy, this Texan <laughs> from San Antonio, Doug Sam, said, hey, if we do this British invasion thing, we can have some hits. It's like they took a little detour. You're right. So they copied the Beatles' She's a Woman and made it their own and called it She's About a Mover. And the reason... They didn't sound like any other British invasion band was because of Augie Myers and that box continental organ. He added the grease to the song, and without it, the song would never have been a hit. The Sir Douglas Quintet never would have been on the map, and Augie Myers ended up having one of the great careers in rock and roll. Here's the Sir Douglas Quintet with Augie Myers on that box continental. She's about a mover on Sound Opinions. Augie Myers and the Vox Continental Organ, the Sir Douglas Quintet doing She's About a Mover, a key component of that song. We're going to come back with some more unsung heroes on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And we also want to know what you think about unsung heroes or anything else. Uh, give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800, or send us an email at interact at soundopinions.org. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Hey, hey, mama said the way you move gonna make you sweat, gonna make you groove. Hey, hey, mama said the way you move gonna make you sweat, gonna make you groove. 
That, of course, is Black Dog by Led Zeppelin. I'm just going to kind of sneak this one in, Greg, because this is one of the ultimate unsung heroes of rock and roll. John Paul Jones. I mean, the poor guy, he's in with one of the most flamboyant rock singers of all yeah. time, with one of the most legendary rock guitarists of all time, and with the guy who probably ranks as the all-time great rock drummer, right? right. What's he doing? Yeah. Well, part of what he was doing was adding the filigree to Zeppelin. I mean, he played any instrument he could pick up. Lap steel, guitar, auto harp, ukulele, sitar, on and on and on. He was tasteful. He played keyboards. But he was also a wonderful bass player, and he doesn't get much credit for that. He wrote that bass line for Mm -hmm. Black Dog, which actually everybody else then just added their parts, and there was a song. Did that quite often on Zeppelin recordings. And, you know, doesn't get his due, mainly because everybody else is a showboat. Yep. And speaking of showboats, I'm going to make the case that the ultimate, at least from my perspective, unsung hero of rock and roll is a fellow who is kind of universally... Uh, laughed at for being the least talented member of the most successful (laughs) rock band of all time. Of course, I'm talking about Ringo Starr, okay? Everybody loves Ringo as a kind of comic fellow. Mm -hmm. You know, he's gone from being the goofy class clown to now he's everybody's kind of lovable, old, funny uncle. Uh, Funny in in a good way. You know, he just put out a solo album last week, his first for Capital. Capital loses Sir Paul McCartney to Starbucks, and and they they sign Ringo (laughs) on a major label for the first time in 12 years. Yeah. Boy, it's awful. Yeah. It's called Liverpool 8, which was the neighborhood he grew up in. And it's just, you want to like what Ringo does, because yeah. how can you not like the guy? But this is one of the worst pieces of trash ever. <laughs> it's going to return more copies than they actually shipped. However, I will fight to my dying breath anyone who underplays Ringo's contributions rhythmically to the Beatles. Mm-hmm. We won't talk about his vocals. Let's talk about him as a drummer. Any really great drummer that you talk to gives the guy massive props. It's only people who don't understand drumming and mm-hmm. think that drumming's all about solos and flashiness and, you know, how fast can the guy play. Ringo had incredible taste. He always played exactly what was right for the song. And these are very little things that musicians talk about. You know, the fact that he would play a rim shot, clicking his stick against the rim of the snare drum instead of hitting it in the center, you know, would give the perfect little lift to a certain part of a song. On and on and on, things like that. But... He also had chops. People think he was a limited talent. On the occasions when it was warranted, when the vocals weren't the center of the song or the guitar part, and of course, you know, you're playing with Lennon and McCartney and Harrison, you know, those guys, he would understand and let them shine. But there were certain songs where he would step forward and I think play some incredibly complicated parts. I've been trying to master the song Rain since I first heard it as a kid. Granted, I'm not a drummer. I'm the sort of drummer people think Ringo was. <laughs> you know, listen to what he's doing on this song, which is one of John Lennon's psychedelic classics, you know, pondering the existence of how do we really know we're alive? Can mm-hmm. we feel the rain? Right? It's from the best period, in my opinion, of the Beatles, their psychedelic days. And listen to what Ringo's doing. And then realize that they actually slowed it down. He played this much faster, and then they slowed it down so the drums would sound heavier. Mm -hmm. And man, this is some great rock and roll drumming from one of the unsung heroes of all time, Ringo Starr and the Beatles on Sound Opinions.
Beatles Rain. You ain't going to diss Ringo, are you? Oh, I love Ringo. All right. You know? All right. For you all the do. reasons you just mentioned, he is an incredible, incredible drummer. The man never gets his due. And thank you, Jim, You're for welcome. finally doing that. You're welcome. Another man who never gets his due, another great unsung hero of rock and roll, and unfortunately he died before he got any recognition at all. There's still time for many of these other people we're still talking about to get the recognition <laughs> true. they deserve while they're alive. Unfortunately, James Jamerson died in 1983, basically penniless, even though he was at the core of just about every essential record that was made at Motown Records in the 60s and early 70s. You talk about Diana Ross and the Supremes. You talk about Martha and the Vandellas. You talk about Smokey Robinson and the Temptations. You talk about Marvin Gaye. You talk about Stevie Wonder. What is the unifying factor in all of them? James Jamerson played bass on their records. And you think, well, wait a minute. What did the bass do on those Motown records? Well, the reason you're moving your butt to those songs <laughs> is because of James Jamerson. Not only that, what James Jamerson did with the bass was not only create a rhythmic line to dance to, but he was playing melodies, in many cases counterpoint melodies to what the lead vocal was doing. Just imagine what the song would sound like without that bass melody in there. So the melding of those two things, the rhythm and the melody, injected a whole new style of playing the bass to rock and roll. A guy like McCartney lifted whole pieces of inspiration from James Jamerson and brought that into the Beatles catalog, for example. Brian Wilson, when he was thinking about bass ideas for the Beach Boys on records like Pet Sounds, was borrowing heavily from what James Jamerson was doing on those Motown records. As I said, the Motown band didn't really get any name recognition. They weren't even listed in the credits for many of those Motown records. People didn't know who these guys were. And as I said, James Jamerson died basically nobody knew who he was. Only in recent years has there been this amazing revival of what James Jamerson was contributing. I think one of the greatest performances he gave is on Stevie Wonder's I Was Made to Love Her. Listen to what he's doing behind the vocal line and listen to the way that bass ascends as we get to the chorus. James Jamerson on Stevie Wonder's I Was Made to Love Her on Sound Opinions.
James Jamerson creating an entire universe with that baseline Jim. You ain't kidding. <laughs> Stevie Wonders, I was made the lover. It's amazing. We are going to do one more pick. Unfortunately, we don't have time for the dozens more that we would love to play on this show, Jim, but hopefully our listeners will contribute uh, some by calling our hotline, 888-859-1800, and we can continue this show in, in future episodes of Sound Opinions. But we have one more pick, a joint one. Yeah, this is one we agreed on, and I think I know where our thinking was coming from. I can speak for myself. I think you're on the same page. One of the great instruments that never gets any recognition is rhythm guitar. Some of the greatest rhythm guitarists of all time, Sterling Morrison in the Velvet Underground, of course, uh, Mick Taylor, and later Ron Wood in the Rolling Stones. I mean, this is the utility player all around, uh, make sure the band is running on time guy who never gets any spotlight time. I, I, right? This is how we, you came by it? The, the best rhythm guitarist of all time? Malcolm Young, without a doubt. And people are saying, wait a minute, Angus Young is the guitar player in ACDC, right, right? right? And everybody recognizes the guy in the knickers and the beanie and Stomping, the guy doing, doing the, the guitar solos. solo. Yeah. yeah. But the guy who makes that band run, and if you listen to their records, it's that rhythm <laughs> guitar, Malcolm Young. And, and the beauty of it, Jim, is it's not all straight tempo. It's not 4-4. Right. I mean, he's leaving space in there, and there's that grease in the wheels, you yeah. know? It's that hip swaying music. It gets you below yeah. the waist, the way Malcolm Young plays that guitar. And the rhythm is what it's all about in ACDC's music. You think about all those megaton ACDC riffs. It's usually Malcolm playing them. Mm. Angus gets the solos, but Malcolm is playing the riffs. And one of the greatest riffs of all time Forget about just ACDC's catalog. All time is this one from Highway to Hell. It's I Malcolm love, Young. I love when you get excited about <laughs> ACDC because people would figure I like ACDC, but they wouldn't necessarily peg you as an ACDC. But you would, you would really take their catalog to the desert island, Oh, my you? God. And, and this record in particular, people swear by Back in Black, but my quintessential <laughs> ACDC record is Highway to Hell. And here's the title track. And listen to Malcolm Young playing those opening chords and tell me you don't get a chill up and down your spine on Sound Opinions.
let me get my devil's horns down, Jim. I had them up in the air the whole time. Malcolm Young, ACDC, Highway to Hell. Man, One of the great, great stuff. unsung heroes of rock and roll. We have a very sung hero uh, on the show next week. Anthony Bourdain, one of the great chefs in the world, one of the great rock and rollers in the world. We're going to show you the connection between food and rock and roll in next week's Sound Opinions. Greg, as always, we've got some thank yous to say. Our intrepid production team is Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with some interning help from Dave Mahler. And you know, when it comes to public radio, people like Ira Glass and uh, the Car Talk guys and that Garrison Keillor fella, they get all the attention, right? But to me, the greatest unsung hero <laughs> of public radio is Tori Southside Malatia. Amen. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey guys, this is uh, Steve from Chicago. Um, you all were talking about some American Idol vets, Daughtry in particular and Carrie Underwood. I don't watch the show. I don't really like it from what I've seen and heard of it. But one thing that really struck me, y'all were talking about these acts, and yeah, okay, they're real popular, they've sold a lot of tracks, and now that seems to have almost disappointed you, and now you're hazy and saying, well, gee, how long are they going to stick around? I mean, these people came from an environment that nobody who is serious about music would expect to get serious quality talent off of, and they, they've done real well, and they've put out music that people like and they buy and they respond to. Can't you give them some credit for getting where they have and putting out a quality product up to now? Can we make this something Why do you have to cut them down saying, oh, well, let's see if they last? You could say that about any up-and-coming band. If it was some indie pop band who put out some great first album, would you haze them and say, well, let's see what they can do tomorrow? You know, I don't think so. Other than that, love the show, and uh, talk to you soon. Hi, my name is Bill Kirkpatrick. I'm calling from Granville, Ohio, and I'm calling regarding the Trent Reznor piece. Uh, Trent Reznor said that he was very disheartened that only 18% of the people who downloaded the Saul Williams album were willing to pay five bucks for it. And it seems like in the air right now, there's a lot of fretting about young people who are not willing to pay for music. And you know, there was a piece by David Pogue of the New York Times a couple weeks ago about the younger generation that's perfectly happy downloading and, and taking something for nothing. And I think it would have been worthwhile to remind people that public radio listeners, including probably a lot of people who listen to Sound Opinions, are really no better. Only about 8% of people who listen to public radio actually ever donate a dime to their public radio station. And you know, this is the disproportionately affluent you know, public radio listener, NPR listener, who listens to hours upon hours of Morning Edition and Prairie Home Companion, and yet apparently about 92% of them see absolutely no problem with taking something for nothing. So Trent Reznor should not be disheartened that 18% of the people who downloaded the album paid something. He should be thrilled. And then finally, I think we could all probably stand to re-examine our own relationship to the digital distribution age and think about the content that we're enjoying and whether we've paid for it, and maybe everybody could uh, you know, go to their computer and find a site and start uh, donating a little bit of money for all this great content that we're enjoying. And you know, who knows, maybe uh, WBEV. So anyway, thanks for all the great shows. Take care. Bye-bye.
Hello, I'm, my name is Mary, so I'm from Chicago, and I'm just calling to comment. It's the first time I've ever called in um, to comment on your interview with the small season, Glenn and Marquetta. The interview had me as riveted and as moved, and as I sat in my in a, my car in a parking lot when those other places I needed to be because I just didn't want to miss a minute of it. So thank you for asking them compelling questions and letting us hear a live version of those amazing songs. group, and I've seen them live, and I've seen the movie a million times, but I think your interview just really touched me. It really kind of gave us a real insight into what they're about and what their music's about, and it was just so much fun. Thank you very, very much. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I paid the cost to late.